that's where we'll be. Unless we all be stressed about the microphone situation. If it keeps up, Mark, I'll just switch to this. It'll be fine. All right. Um, it'll be no problem. Genesis 12 is where we are. I want to just say the church looks so beautiful during this Advent season, and I want to thank uh, our media director. Yep, you can, you can applaud that. Thank you to Jessica Dupuy, our media director, and also to uh, the team that has been here all week this past week decorating this place. Thank you to each and every one of you for what you did, uh, certainly helping to, uh, to add into that Christmas mood, that Advent mood here during this Advent season. So uh, we are going through this sermon series, and we started last week looking in Isaiah 9, and we're seeing how Jesus is the fulfillment of these great Old Testament prophecies and Old Testament promises. So last week, Isaiah 9, 700 years before Jesus was even born, uh, we had this prophecy about a child who would come, who would be this great light, and the government would be upon his shoulders. I'm going to make the switch. How's that? Woo, righty. Okay. I'm going to do the whole thing. I'm taking the wire out. This thing's not comfortable. You know, you don't wake up every Sunday morning going, I can't wait to put the wire on today. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and take the wire off. And uh, I'm just going to sit it here. And now we're going to rock and roll. All right. So um, a little background in Genesis 12. The book begins with Moses' record of creation, right? God is creating all things out of nothing through the power of his son. Everything that he has made is good. And then we get to the creation of a man and woman, and God says that it is very good. And he creates Adam, and he creates Eve in his image, and he designs them to be worshipers and to receive joy from glorifying him, to receive joy from worshiping him. This is the purpose that they were made for, and it's the purpose that you and I were made for as human beings created in the image of God, just like our first parents. But in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin against God. He gave them every tree in the garden to eat from, except from the one tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden. But they did eat from that tree. And when they did that, they were separated from God, and their relationship with God was broken. And he had told them, you eat from this tree, you're surely going to die. And so now, this life that he has given them is going to end in death. He lets them live for many, many years so that his grace would abound, but their lives are now going to end in death because of sin. And for the next seven chapters of Genesis, from Genesis 4 all the way through the end of Genesis 11, what you're seeing is the outworking of the sin that has entered into the world. You're seeing depravity on display. You see it when Adam's son, Cain, rises up in the field and murders his brother Abel out of jealousy. You see it in Genesis 5. Because there is this list of Adam's descendants. And with the exception of Enoch, every one of them what? dies. And so we are reminded that the curse of Genesis 3 is in full effect. Sin has brought death into the world and death is rampant. We see it in chapters 6 through 9 in God's global judgment of the flood because of the depravity that is in the earth. We see it in the generations of Noah in chapter 10 where once again we're reminded that death is taking the life of every person who walks on the earth. And you see it in chapter 11 when the whole earth has one language and people migrate and attempt to build a tower for themselves and to make a name for themselves. 
They attempt to steal the glory of God. And chapter 11 ends with God scattering the nations in judgment. And so seeing how sin has wreaked havoc throughout God's creation, the reader is left after 11 chapters going, man, how is this going to get fixed? How is God going to reverse the curse of sin and the the, the curse of death? How will God recover worship from the mouths of his creation who are so deeply entangled in this horrible iniquity? And that is where Terah's family enters the picture and his son Abram is called by God to a life of faith that would change the eternal storyline of existence. So Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. As we go through this today, I'm going to give us three teaching points. And I want us to see, as we are working through it, how Christ is the fulfillment of Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And there's this great application to be made about faith as we go along. So teaching point number one, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Faith is a response to God's call. Faith is a response to God's call. We see this in verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. What is Abram's country? Where are we talking about here? Who are his people? Where does he come from? Well, here's what we see at the end of chapter 11. As as we are longing for redemption, as we're longing for some way for creation to be made right, we're introduced to this family. It says, Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, and she had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to the land of, into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Abram's family came from Ur, which is about 186 miles southeast of modern-day Baghdad. It was known as a peaceful city, and it was also known as a prosperous city because it was located right on the Euphrates River. At the center of the city, there was a giant ziggurat that was a temple built for the worship of the moon god Nana. And what that tells us is that Abram came from idolaters. He came from a people who bowed down to a false god. Nana is one of the oldest gods of the Mesopotamian world. He was seen as the creator of the moon and was looked at as being wise and kind. And Abram worshipped him, which I don't know about you, but that's weird for me to think about. Because when I think of Abram, I think of Father Abraham had many sons, had many sons. Okay, we don't have to keep going. Let's stop there. Um, And when we think of him as the father of faith, the last thing in the world we think of the patriarch of patriarchs doing, God's man of belief, right, is bowing down to some false god, to some false idol. But that is exactly the life that Abram was living. He was an idolater from Ur. 
So in chapter 12, verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, what we have is God speaking to him in his sovereign grace. The one who governs all things chose that in this moment in time he would talk to Abram. Abram's done nothing to deserve this. He shouldn't hear God's voice. He's got no merit to offer up to God. He's an idolater, right? But God sovereignly and lovingly chose to call this man out of his idolatry, out of his Nana-worshipping world. He plucked him up, and he is calling him to something, to leave his country, to leave his kindred, to leave his father's house. And in this gracious and sovereign call, to leave his land, to leave his family, to leave his inheritance, because that's likely what it means to leave his father's house, right? To leave his inheritance. In this sovereign call, he is being beckoned to really give up everything that has defined him up to this point in his life. I mean, imagine right now that God called you out of nowhere and said, I want you to leave Yorktown, Virginia. And outside of your immediate family, I want you to leave everybody that you know behind to likely never speak to them again. And I want you to give up your 401k in the process and go to this new place that I'm going to show you. Might you have some questions? It's really easy to read this and to say, no, Abram didn't have anything going on. Right? To think that he was just kind of walking around in the desert just going, I hope God will talk to me. There's this God I don't know. I hope he'll talk to me. No, that's not. He was, he was going about his life. He was living his idolatrous life with idolatrous people that he loved and that he knew. And he cared about his life just as much as you care about yours. And then God said, leave it all. It is one of the hardest things we see God call to anybody, uh, call anybody to in the scriptures. And if Abram's going to listen, he's not just giving up physical things. He is also giving up the faith he has practiced his entire life. Because the worship of gods was attached to households. So it was his father who taught him to worship Nana. And it would be expected that any future generations that came from Abram, they would worship Nana as well. And so for him to leave his father's household was to leave his father's God and to leave his entire religion and faith that he had known up until this point behind. But notice that God's calling Abram to nothing that he's not going to give back to him. Go from your country to the land that I will show you. Leave your family, and I will make of you a great nation. Leave your inheritance, your father's house, but receive the role of being a blessing to all the families of the earth. And what's implied in all of it is forsake Nana, leave Nana behind, and worship Yahweh, the one true God of the universe. And the rest of Genesis then moves from being about the history of the created world to being about the history of this man's family. And if that's the case, then here's what we know. He answered the call. He believed God. He followed God. He trusted in God to come through on his promises. And I think that every Christian experiences something of what Abram is experiencing on a couple of levels. First of all, we experience it in our initial call to salvation. The gospel call to believe. We see ourselves in Abram because like him, we were born bowing down to false gods. Maybe not the false god of Nana. I would imagine for a lot of you, this was your first uh, introduction to Nana today. But certainly the gods of entertainment and money and comfort and distraction and legalism and all the other 
false gods that are just crying out for us to come and to bow down and to give our worship to them. It's not hard to find an idol ready to absorb your worship. And God stepped into our ignorance and into our idolatrous existence and he opened up our ears to hear his voice. His word never would have seemed true to us unless he had opened our ears to it. His son never would have sounded glorious to me unless he had intervened and quickened my spiritual ability to listen to the words of his son. God Almighty would still be my enemy if God Almighty had not cleared the way for my ears to hear the gospel of the kingdom that has made me his friend. And so yes, we would say we can identify with Abram because as much as he could do nothing but believe God and obey God and praise God, we can only do the same. Why Abram? Why this guy? Why not some other guy moseying around in the ancient world? Because it was God's free choice to pick Abram and to say that's my guy. And Abram's response to that gracious choice should be to fall down on his face in adoration and worship. And so it is with us. Why was I born to two parents that live in America, a land of great religious light? My parents weren't Christians when I was born. They became Christians when I was 14 and they led me to the Lord. But would they have become Christians when I was 14 years old if they didn't live in America, this land of great religious light? Why did he allow you to walk into that youth group that you got saved in when you were a teenager? Why did he allow you to be born in a country with great religious light? It's just free choice to do so. God, why is it that I know you? Why is it that you love me? Well, I love you because I love you. You know me because it was my glorious agenda for you to know me and our response to that should be to fall down on our face and to give our lives to him in praise secondly though we don't just identify with Abraham and salvation we identify with him in our daily discipleship because it's not just at the beginning of your walk with Christ that he calls you to abandon everything for him this is the call every day every day we come to him And we've got a bushel of our own little desires and we've got our own little agenda written down on a little list, right? And we come to him with our unsanctified desires and agendas and we lay it down. And through his word and through prayer and through the conviction of his spirit, once again he goes, no, 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 no. You've got to leave that. You can't go back to that. You can't have that. That's not good for you. And he draws us away from sin. He draws us into intimacy with Christ. Every day he calls us to give up the desires of our flesh and to to give up those those self-centered desires that we have in order to honor him. For Abram, it meant land and it meant family and inheritance and his false idols. I don't know what it means for you today, but I hope you're reading your Bible and I hope you're praying and I hope you're worshiping God daily because it is in the sanctuary of your worship with God and it is in those spiritual disciplines that he speaks and he tells you of new Canaans that he wants you to go to and new levels of obedience to pursue, new planes of holiness he wants you to rise to by your grace. I think Christians who really never give up anything for God are likely Christians who are not really growing. And they're not growing because they're not daily tuning their heart to his voice. And if only they would, they would find that he wants to sanctify them and call them out of their complacency, out of their backsliding, out of their immaturity, 
He wants to use the sound of his daily voice to call us into holiness, to draw us away from the world, to draw us into deeper intimacy with him, to, to abandonment all over again. So that's teaching point number one. Faith is a response to God's call. Number two, faith is trust in God's plan. Faith is a trust in God's plan. To understand God's plan for Abram, we need to look closer at these promises, all right? Four promises that are really being laid out in front of him. One is land. That's implied. The land that I will show you. Number two, in verse two, a great nation. Going to make a great nation out of him. Uh, second, uh, thirdly, uh, a great name, right? That contrasts with what was going on in chapter 11. Why were they building the Tower of Babel? Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. In humanity's plan, uh, plan they were going to make a name for themselves. They were going to make their own name great by rebelling against God. But here, in God's plan, Abram's name will be made great if he believes God. Not rebels against God, believes God. This idea of him getting a great name also tells us that kings are going to come, right, out of Abraham's line. His name is going to be great because royalty is going to come from his line, which is explicitly promised to him by God later on. Also, there's going to be a global blessing that's going to come through Abram. If you bless Abram, God will bless you. You dishonor Abram, God will curse you. So these are the, the promises laid before him, right? These are the details of what we call the Abrahamic covenant. And it's a crucial covenant that God makes with Abram. It has bearing for the entirety of the Bible. When you get to Revelation 22 and you're reading the end of this book, there are Genesis 12 implications all over that passage. And because of that, we see the Abrahamic covenant being reiterated throughout Genesis because it's so important. So in chapter 13, Abram separates from his nephew Lot. It's a big moment in his life. What does God do? He reiterates the covenant. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. You see it again in chapter 15, in a covenant-making ceremony between Abram and God. In that scene, Abram is lamenting the fact that his wife has not yet given him an heir. How in the world is a great nation going to come from his loins if he can't get one child to come from his loins, right? That is the practical problem that's on the table. And he's lamenting this. And so God ratifies his covenant with Abram in the ceremony where a heifer, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon are all cut in two. And then Abram is put to sleep during the ceremony to show this is all really God's work and it's not his. And then God reiterates the covenant again. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. 
In Genesis 17, many years have passed since the promise. Abram still has no son, and yet here is God again assuring him his plan will come to pass. I won't read the whole thing, but if you work through the first eight verses of Genesis 17, you'll see God promising that he will make covenant between himself and Abraham. He will multiply Abram greatly. Abram will be a a father of a multitude of nations, Uh, He says to him, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. That's part of him having a great name. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Finally, he has a son. He has a son and in Genesis 22 He is called by God to take that son up to the mountain and to lay him on the altar and to sacrifice him. And Abram is willing to do it. And he trusts God that even if this is what is being called, he's being called to do, God will bring the boy back to life. And that he and the boy will come back down from the mountain. God, of course, stays his hand and provides a sacrifice. And it's not Isaac that dies on that mountain. But afterwards, God says, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sands that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The task laid before Abram in all this is to believe. He would need to act for certain. There is a transaction that must take place between him and Sarah for the heir to be born, right? There are things he must do, but God is the one in control. God is the one fulfilling promises in his time. He's the covenant maker and he's the covenant fulfiller. The question is, how would God actually fulfill this covenant? And this is where Jesus, the Advent lamb, enters into the equation. What is Abraham being promised? Land, a name, a nation. He'll be a blessing. How will the promises be kept? They'll be kept the same way that all of God's promises are kept in his son, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So how does Jesus fulfill the promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12? Well, let's talk about what Jesus has done in terms of the big picture. Big picture-wise, we have just celebrated the Lord's Supper, right? We've commemorated that. And as we have taken the Lord's Supper, we remembered the words that he spoke on that night when he instituted it. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks... He gave it to them, and they drank all of it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. What Jesus meant when he said that is that in his death, the new covenant is established. See, when when covenants were established, God required blood. We saw that in Genesis 15. A covenant is being ratified, it's being established, therefore there needs to be blood, so that's why the heifer and, and the, um, the turtle dove and the pigeon, they're all being cut in two, right? They're all being torn apart. 
At the cross, Jesus' blood is poured out to establish the new covenant. A new covenant where he would forgive the sins of his people and he would write his laws in their heart and he would be their God and they would be his people. This is what is, is, is promised through Jeremiah. This is what the new covenant would be. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So with his blood being poured out and our sin being removed, all the promises of God, including the ones being made to Abram, now belong to God's people through Christ. His blood is poured out, sins removed, were made right with God, and now, as his sons and daughters, his inheritance will come to us. The inheritance of, 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 of being a new covenant believer, now and for all of eternity, they come to us through Christ. And that includes these promises made in Genesis 12 to Abram. So what does this look like? How has Jesus secured the Abrahamic promise of land for you and me? Well, in Christ, we will be given an eternal place to dwell as the worshipers of God with the new heavens and the new earth. And at the heart of the new earth, there will be the new Jerusalem. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In the immediate, certainly, there is a plot of land that is being promised to Abraham and his family. But ultimately, that land is a whole lot bigger than we're thinking. We're talking about the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. We're talking about the eternal dwelling place of the people of God prepared for us by him secured for us by him how does the promise to make Abraham's name great find fulfillment in Christ well it's the fact that God incarnate is born from his line the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David the son of Abraham right the king of kings has 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 come from his lineage there is nothing greater than that. What about the promise of a great nation? How is that fulfilled in Christ? Well, again, in the immediate, we would say a physical nation came from Abram, the Jewish people. But we know from reading the Bible that not all of Israel is Israel. Some that are Jewish by blood are not Jewish by faith. And as many in Israel rejected God, they failed to be a light to the nations around them. They failed to bless the people around them. And they were disciplined by God in their failing. But we find out as we read the New Testament that as a part of the new covenant, God is forming a new people for himself. And in this group, there is not just going to be Jewish people who are 
physically from the nation of Israel, right? They, have, they physically have Jewish blood, but there's also going to be people who are physically not from Israel, people who have Gentile blood. But they're all going to be living together as one covenant community under Christ, who's brought the Gentiles in by his blood. He's brought us all under one spiritual roof, which is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So God has made for himself a true Israel. Through his son, filled with forgiven people who have faith in him and who love him and who demonstrate that love through obedience to the laws that he has written on their hearts. We're talking about the church. Peter writes about the church this way. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church is truly the fulfillment of God's promise to Abram about a great nation. And then lastly, the promise that Abram would be a blessing to all the families of the earth is fulfilled in Christ coming through his line and saving people for himself from every tribe, from every people group, from every nation on the earth. And as you read in Revelation 21, it says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty. And the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And then listen, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations." Now, did Abram know all this when he followed God out into that land that was shown to him? Of course not. He didn't have his Nancy Guthrie books on Old Testament themes and biblical theology and Christ's fulfillment. He didn't have that. He didn't have his ESV study Bible like a lot of you do. He didn't have Google to search it up, as the kids say. He simply believed God and trusted in the plan and promises of God. Now, we stand on the other side of the cross this morning, New Testaments in hand. We understand that the plan Abram trusted in had Jesus at the center of it. That God's son would come from his line. That God's son would come and die for the people of God and open the way for them to live in the glory of heaven forever. That God's son would make a new nation for himself called the church with Jew and Gentile dwelling together under the peace won for us at Calvary. That God's son is the blessed one from Abram's line who would make a way for, uh, for his people to, to bless the world, right? To bless the nations through the preaching of the gospel. We stand on the other side of the cross and we understand those things. But Abram didn't. And yet with our New Testament understanding, we can say, since God has elected in his infinitely wise plan to accomplish all of this through the power of his son, then we can conclude when Abram put his faith in God's plan, he put his faith in God's son. Do you see that? He didn't understand it. He didn't know all of it. What he knew is that God spoke and said, believe me. And he said, I believe you. I believe in your plan and I believe in your promise. What was the plan? It's Jesus. Jesus was the plan to bring all of these promises to fruition. 
So in trusting God, he's trusting Christ. May not have understood it, may not have known his name, but he heard the call and the promises of God and he trusted in his plan, which is Christ securing the kingdom through the life, death, and resurrection and ascension. And this is why Paul was able to write in Romans 4, What then shall we say was gained for Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so if you want to experience the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and receive its blessings in your own life, then you have to have the same faith as Abraham. What Abraham demonstrated was saving faith. Right? He believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness, meaning he believed God. He was made right with God. Right? He had faith and he was made right with God. It's saving faith. You need saving faith if you want all of the promises of God that find their yes in Jesus Christ to be yours. So, what is saving faith? Well, the reformers said that there's a threefold answer to that question. Saving faith, on one hand, it is knowledge. You understand facts about God. But that's not enough for salvation, right? I, I mean, you, you could know a whole lot about God, but not love him, not worship him, not adore him, not follow him. So it has to include knowledge, but it can't just be knowledge. Faith also has to include assent. You don't just know facts about God. You agree with those facts about God. And yet we would say this also is not enough for salvation. Because I could know things about God and I could agree with those things and still not surrender to him. Still love my sin too much to repent. And so that brings us to the third element of saving faith. And that's trust. You know things about God, you agree with those things, and you trust. Trust ties the knot of justifying faith. It's crucial. When we know facts about God, we agree with those facts, and then we place our trust in him, now we're getting somewhere. It's not enough for me to simply know that Jesus is Savior or to agree with the reality that he is the Savior. I have to trust in that. I have to rely on that and nothing else for my salvation daily. Not my own works, not my own abilities, not anybody else's works or abilities, not comparing myself to other people. It's just Jesus. I'm relying on him and his mercy every day and that's it. When Abram left everything he'd ever known, he trusted God he trusted his plan, and in doing so, he trusted in Christ, and we have to do the same. Let's wrap it up. Last point. Faith is a response to God's call. Faith is trust in God's plan. And, and last point, faith is a conduit for God's blessings. Now, when I say faith is a conduit for God's blessings, I recognize that it sounds like a teaching point out of a sermon of a certain very toothy, smiling preacher from down in Texas, all right? I actually went to Pastor Ben this week, and I said, this is all right, right, what I'm saying here, okay? And he said, just because people who tell lies say things like that and misconstrue it doesn't mean that that's not true. What you're saying is true. This is true. We're not talking about believing more to receive more here. We are talking about how God takes joy 
and glorifying himself by blessing his children when they trust him. He loves to do this. We know that because we see him doing it all throughout the scriptures. Let's just think about Genesis 3 through 11 as a whole compared with the first few verses of, of chapter 12. In Genesis 3, Adam falls into sin, right? Then you see a curse. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. A lot of the women in the crowd were like, amen. And in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. After Cain murders his brother in Genesis 4, God says, and now you were cursed from the ground. So Genesis 3, there's sin, we get a curse. Genesis 4, there's a murder, we get a curse. Genesis 5, Lamech gives his son Noah a name, which means out of the ground that the Lord is cursed. So here Noah's being born, and Noah, he is a symbol of redemption, right? He's going to provide some hope because of the way he's going to trust God and believe God and obey God. And yet, we're still reminded of the curse, even in his naming. In chapter 8, we're reminded of the curse of Genesis 3 again, when God promises not to curse the ground again because of man. Meanwhile, between chapters 3 and 11, there's just two mentions of God blessing anybody. But there's two curses pronounced in Genesis 3 alone. But then in the midst of all these curses, you have shooting up like an oasis in the desert the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12. There are five mentions of blessings in these three verses alone. More than double all the nine previous chapters combined. So it's sin comes in the world, curse, 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 curse. Then Genesis 12, there is hope. There's hope in blessing. And these blessings really come down to three points. God will bless Abraham, meaning he will give Abraham favor that will result in safety and prosperity. God will make Abraham a blessing, meaning he will use Abraham to bring safety and prosperity to other people. And Abraham will be a channel of blessing to the entire world. So there will be favor for the nations through his family. If you read through the reiterations of the blessing in chapters 13, 15, 17, and 22, what you'll see is two of these three promised blessings were conditional. If Abraham's family are faithful to God, then God will bless Abraham and his family. You are fully, you understand what a conditional promise is. If you eat your dinner, then you can have dessert. You know what a conditional promise is. How many of you have made that promise before, right? And you know if the dinner is not eaten, you know, it's the way it's going to go down. So, Abraham and his family, if they will be a blessing to others, their position with God will not be jeopardized. And we know that those two blessings are conditional because we see God taking those blessings away from Israel when they're disobedient throughout their history, right? They grumble against God, complain about God, they doubt God. Well, Moses, your generation is not going to enter into the promised land. You're going to wander in the wilderness for four decades. They reject his leadership through the judges. Now, here's a king in Saul who so perfectly captures why you should not trust in men over God. And it's a king whose brashness and jealousy will bring the kingdom and welfare of Israel under threat. They commit spiritual adultery by worshiping false idols. The Babylonians come in and wreck them and carry them off into captivity. Do you see how the promises were conditional? 
And that shows us how faith is a conduit for God's blessings. When we believe God, when we understand what he's saying, we agree with it, we trust in it, and we demonstrate that trust through obedience, God blesses us. Those blessings may not always look the way we want them to look, may not always look the way the world says blessings should look. It's not always health and wealth. Often it's not health and wealth. But he will bless you, and his blessing will be enough to sustain you to do whatever it is that he's called you to do, and his blessings will lift you to the heights of spiritual joy no matter what you got going on. Because you're a worshiper. The third blessing, though, is not conditional. It's unconditional. No matter how badly Abraham and his family would mess up, God's plan is not going to be deterred. God is not going, I really hope this Abraham fellow can pull it off because I got some important stuff from my son down the line and he's going to be born out of Abraham's line. No, he is going to bless the world through Abraham's family. End of story. Decreed, he's going to do it. And that blessing would come, of course, in Christ being born from his line. The Messiah who would come and die for his people, who would lay down his life to buy an eternal land for his tribe, who would be crucified to buy for himself a nation who would be so numerous that they're like the stars in the sky or the sand on the shore. The one who would bless the nations by gathering his people from the four winds and into his kingdom. From Genesis 12 on, you see Abraham and his kids fail big. I mean, right after the covenant is made in Genesis 12, he goes down to Egypt, and out of fear for his life, he pimps out his wife to the Egyptian king. Our kids are in here for communion. I'll let you ask your parents about that later. It's not great. He's supposed to bring about a great heir with Sarah. Instead, he's pawning her off to a foreign throne. It is unclear if the king actually sleeps with her. Painfully unclear. Then in Genesis 16, he tries to short-circuit God's plan again by agreeing to this whole scheme where he sleeps with Hagar, his wife's Egyptian servant. Not the plan. It's not the plan. But they're trying to be so practical, and their practicality leads to all sorts of complicated stuff, as tends to happen when a third person is introduced to a marriage bed. And then in Genesis 20, just before Isaac is conceived, Abram once again handing his wife off to save his own hide. Again, unclear if the king he hands her off to sleeps with her, but the text seems to insinuate the unthinkable. It just gets worse with his grandkids, playing favorites, stealing inheritance, uh, rape, murder, selling siblings into slavery. I mean, Game of Thrones has got nothing on Genesis. Seriously. And yet, in all of this, God's plan to bring his Messiah from this line is not deterred. Jesus will be born the son of Abraham. When it comes to Abraham, he ultimately believed God and he obeyed, though. He was messed up, man. I mean, the guy had some issues, much like the rest of us. At the end of his life, he came good, and as a, on the whole, look at the painting of Abram's life on the whole. From the time that God called him, he's a faithful man. We know this in Genesis 24, uh, his servant goes down to find a wife for Isaac and he says, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master for, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. God blessed Abraham because Abraham believed God. 
We know Abraham is faithful because the New Testament speaks well of him. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And who he had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He's included in the list of the faithful, believing saints in Hebrews 11. He wasn't a perfect man, but God's grace brought Abraham to faith. It was credited to him as righteousness. His sin was forgiven, his life was sustained, and he lived in God's favor. And ultimately, everything God promised him, he will receive, and he will receive it the same way you will, by trusting in God. A heavenly home, citizenship in a heavenly nation, the blessing of eternal salvation. Christ secures all of this for his people. But they are divine gifts to be received by faith. And in the same way Abraham trusted in God's plan, you must trust in his plan in order to be saved and receive those gifts. You must understand that God says you are a sinner and his son is the only cure for the judgment you should receive. You must agree And admit that you are a sinner and turn away from that sin and you must place the full dependence of your soul on Christ who suffered in your place and rose again to defeat sin and to crush death. In him, by faith, the blessings of Abraham will be yours because by faith you will be a child of Abraham, a son or a daughter of God. But you must believe. And so I urge you to that this morning as we close. I urge you to believe. I urge you to do what Abraham did, to abandon everything that you've ever known for the sake of knowing this God and receiving the inheritance that he will give to you. And it all comes through his son, Jesus Christ. The season is all about him. It's all building up to the celebration of his birth. And he was born to die, and he died for you. He died in your place, and now he offers you eternal life. And so understand it, agree with it, But don't stop there. Trust in it. Let's pray.